It's my uh, pleasure to introduce uh, Dr. Jonathan Lehman to you all. If you were here last night, you were treated to a wonderful feast of understanding uh, God, his goodness, King Jesus over all things, even in this time of great uh, fear and trepidation regarding election and pandemic and all the other things that we're facing. I'm thankful to God for this dear brother. He has served the church well. Uh, he works as the editorial director of Nine Marks Ministry. Um, he really, Nine Marks is a, is a organization that really is seeking to equip the church to be biblically faithful uh, churches to display the wisdom of God, and, and we have been served well by his writings and encouragement. He's an author, has written extensively both on theology and politics as well as other issues, but it's for the theology and pol politics that we're, we're here today as he explains Psalm 2, so I'm excited. Uh, and Jonathan models well for me, as well as for many others, both a, a strong desire to get things right, and yet a deep humility uh, to say things gently and graciously. So, brother, um, thank you for coming here and serving us. Please come. Good morning, friends. Good to be with you. Bring you greetings from Chevrolet. Baptist Church. We have been, what a lovely building you're inside of. We've not been meeting inside of a building. We've been meeting in a field and uh, next to another church because we're, we're a plant. We're a couple of years old, which means we meet in a public school. The public schools are all shut down to the new year. So we're like, where can we go? Oh, well, we can go to this field. And just this morning at 7 a.m., I got an email saying, church is canceled. It's too wet. <laughs> so, so they're doing Zoom. It's so nice to be in this room. Wish we had one. Lucky you. Um, uh, if, if you were with us last night, it was, it was a pleasure to be with you to think about faith and politics. And for Tom, if you, didn't, if you weren't here, we announced his candidacy. Did you guys? <laughs> Candidate for your favorite senior pastor, right? I think you've already won the spot, right? Okay. Well, we, we continue in some ways on the reflections of last night. Uh, faith and politics, and you guys know how challenging it is out there right now. Just a few weeks ago, I saw a tweet from somebody named James who was arguing for President Trump's re-election. He tweeted this, this is our last stand, folks, and here's your last defender. If they take him down, America is gone forever. Vote for Donald Trump like your life depends on it. James believes the other side is an existential threat. That's just a fancy, an existential threat. That's just a fancy way of saying a threat against existence. Okay? Vote for Trump like your life depended on it. Your life depends on it. There's an existential threat threat against existence from the other side, he's saying. America will be gone forever apart from him. And if we were to keep fishing around on Twitter, we could find things from the other side saying the same thing. Vote against Trump as if your life depended on it, right? And if we think about the slogans of this side or that side, we feel that same existential threat. Just think of the phrase, Black Lives Matter. What, what does that phrase mean? Well, that means people of color feel like their lives do matter 
but the way things are would suggest that their lives don't matter. Just, Just kind of a basic understanding of that phrase, right? In other words, people of color feel an existential threat to who and what they are. So they have to assert, my life matters. I was talking to a group of church leaders from another church and speaking specifically, if you were here last night, I think especially in the Q&A, I I told the story of a a Hispanic man who's who's a pastor, one of the pastors of this church. And we were talking about Christian liberty and he said, Jonathan, I, I struggle with your talk of Christian liberty, he said, I believe that the president's rhetoric incites and empowers racist actions that have the genuine potential to cause physical harm to my body and my family. Will my parents be safe from physical harm when they go grocery shopping? Will someone see my father as dangerous because he's an immigrant? What does he feel? He feels an existential threat, a threat against his, his parents' existence, right? In other words, friends, whether we're looking to the right or we're looking to the left, this is kind of the language that's used, the the grenades that are thrown, the language that's used to describe our present situation. And as a result, both sides increasingly occupy a posture, a position of fear, resentment, rage. After all, when you feel an existential threat against you, what do you do? Well, you're afraid at first, and you kind of collect yourself, and then you rage against the source of that fear. Fairly natural response, of course. And so people are quick on social media and elsewhere to rage against anyone who doesn't follow the script that their side feels, even eventually Christians against Christians, this side, that side. So what do we do? Well, one way to respond to the existential threat is to play the cool-headed middle, to say, tut, tut, y'all are being hysterical. Everybody calm down. The threat isn't that big. Of course, the problem with that is If you're an unborn baby, the threat against your existence really is very real. And if you're speaking to my Hispanic friend Elder, well, he he is also feeling that existential threat. In other words, friends, politics is the realm of existential threats. Politics is where, government is where we go to secure this platform of safety, order, and peace, where we are protected. That's what politics and government is for, is is to push off the existential threats. It's, It's finally no good to say, you're being hysterical, everybody calm down. People know better. People don't believe it. So again, what do we do? Well, my goal this morning is to preach... Uh, the text that the sister just read, Psalm chapter 2. This is going to be something in between an expositional sermon where I'm just trying to expose the text and you might say a a topical sermon where I'm applying it really to a specific topic. Uh, I'm going to use Psalm 2 to meditate, help us meditate on the political landscape. You might say that Psalm 2 is sort of like a a pair of x-ray vision glasses that let us see behind 
the promises and the threats of our politicians and parties to know what's actually going on. And ultimately, what we're going to learn is not that the existential threats aren't real. They are real. But what we're going to learn is that there is something far scarier. And that's the eternal threat of God himself. So we just read it. Uh, Acts 13 and Acts 4 tell us that it's a psalm of David who is no stranger to existential threats. Uh, it's, It's a cosmic picture of God's plans for the nations. And it's one of the most explicit messianic psalms in the Bible, meaning referring to the Messiah. And what we find is it divides, I think, fairly easily into four parts, each of which offers a lesson for us. Lesson one comes from verses one to three, and the lesson, if you're a note taker, is that every nation rebels against the Lord, and it's vain. Every nation rebels against the Lord, and it's an utterly vain exercise. Verse one, why do the nations rage? And the people's plot in vain. Of course, it's a rhetorical question. Uh, Why would you do this? Don't don't you understand this is utterly futile? This is vain, is is the scope of that nature of that question. And notice how he takes in all the earth, nations and peoples with the S, right? It's not just Israel. It's, it's, It's all the nations of the earth. And notice also he then focuses his indictment politically. He says kings and and rulers rage against him. And when we get to Acts 4, we'll discover he has in mind both Herod and Pontius Pilate, Jews and Gentiles. And of course, in a democracy, who are the kings? Well, is it not finally the voters? It would seem that the voters of the nations of the earth rage against the Lord. And it's not just the Lord, though, they rage against. Keep reading. It's the Lord and his anointed His, in Hebrew, Mashiach, Messiah. The kings, the rulers, the voters of the earth rage against the Lord Jesus Christ, says this text. And notice how political all of this is. This is not, you know, somebody waxing philosophical saying, well, you know, I have a philosophical, I have an epistemological objection to this idea that we can know who God is you know, this Bible, is that true? That, that's not, this is not armchair philosophizing going on here. I, well, which religion is actually the right way? That, that's not what's going on here. There's a profoundly political thing going on here. Verse 3, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords. Jesus says he wants to rule. I don't want him to rule because I want to rule. You see? And that word there for bonds, referring to the, kind of the, the yoke that goes over oxen, how do the nations perceive the rule of, of the Lord and His anointed, God the Father, God the Son, how do they perceive it? It's this oppressive, binding, yoke-like, enslaving thing on them. So what do they want to do? They want to they cast it off. The politics of the nations, friends, oppose the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Well, the nations, the rest of the Bible tells us, have their own gods that they worship. Again, if you're a note taker, write this down. Our our worship determines our politics. 
Our worship determines our politics. Our governments serve our gods. That's been true of every government since God gave governments to the world. The voter voting, the judge judging, the president presiding. We're all at work on behalf of our God or gods when we step into the public square. Now, if, if, you're, if you're watching or you're listening this morning and you would not understand yourself to be a Christian, thank you for being here. Interesting verses, right? What, 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 are the, what, are the, what is the lesson of these first few verses for you, if, again, if you don't understand yourself to be a Christian? Well, I think fairly clearly there's an indictment on you and me and all of us, right? That in our natural fallen selves, we don't like the rule of God. And we rage against it. You and I do that. The nations does that, do that. <clears throat> China rages against the Lord Jesus Christ. India, Russia, Kenya, Peru rage against the Lord Jesus Christ. The United States rages against the Lord Jesus Christ. Republicans, Democrats, Independents, we all rage against the Lord Jesus Christ. How, how do I know? Well, this text is telling me. And also, frankly, friend, I, I know my own heart. And I know the hearts of others well enough to know we want to rule ourselves. And so we rage against the Lord Jesus when he would come in and say, you know, I'm king of kings, I'm Lord of lords, repent and follow me. And so we rage against that. Now, I'm not saying the volume level of all of those nations, all the parties, the volume level on that rage is the same. Sometimes it's louder, sometimes it's quieter. Think of, think of Pharaoh at the time of, of, of Joseph. For those of you who you know, know, your, know your Genesis and Exodus, Pharaoh at the time of, of Joseph, he's protecting God's people, right? Travel a few hundred years. Pharaoh, another Pharaoh at the time of Moses, devouring God's people. There's clearly better and worse governments in the Bible. A good exercise for you to, this afternoon over lunch would be like uh, sitting with a friend, a, a family member, and just kind of looking through the Bible and saying, okay, what makes for a better or worse government? That's not the point of this text. This text has an utterly leveling effect and indictment. The nations, the rulers, the peoples, the kings rage against the Lord and against his anointed. God has declared Christ to be king, so we rage. Okay, so if you're, if you're listening as a Christian, member of Christ's covenant church, what's, what's the lesson of these first view verses? Well, it's that our faith is a political threat. Our faith is a political threat to the nations and their rulers. That's why they rage. We talk about the culture wars. What are they actually? Well, they're actually wars of religion. 
That's the biggest political divide in the Bible. It's not left versus right, Republican versus Democrat, country versus city, globalist versus nationalist. The biggest political divide in the Bible is for Jesus against Jesus. There is no neutrality. You're for him or you're against him, says this text. And the fact that he says he is king means that his claim on our lives is Total. He cares how we spend our money. He cares who we sleep with. He cares what we do with our jobs. He cares how we spend our time on vacations. His claim is total. Of course the nations rage. He cares what we do in the ballot box. Of course the nations rage against him. And anybody who connects himself, themselves, who's associated, who is allied to him. Your faith, Christian, is not just a faith threat. It is a political threat. They like you when you're standing with them and Jesus goes the way they want to go because sometimes he does. But since you're following Jesus, that means sometimes you're going to stand against them. They don't like that. And they will rage. And friend, it's always, friends, it's always been this way. Go back to ancient Rome. The Caesars and the Governors of ancient Rome opposed Christians and sometimes threw them to the lions because ancient Rome understood that its prosperity, its economic, political, military prosperity depended on the favor of the gods. And so they would offer sacrifices to the gods, earning the gods' favor to preserve their prosperity as an empire. These Christians over here, of course, wouldn't offer sacrifices to the gods, threatening the gods' favor, threatening our economic, political, military prosperity. We got to get these Christians in line. Hey, Christians, you better offer sacrifices. No, we won't. Well, we pose you. We rage against you. You oppose my gods. You oppose me and my way of life. Therefore, I will pose, oppose you. I will rage against you when you oppose my gods. Do you see how this works? America, too, friends, has many gods. We have the God of material comfort, and the God of technology, and the God of progress, and the God of my rights, and the God of self-definition, and the God of sex, and the God of safety, and my skin color. Oppose my way of life you oppose my gods, I will rage against you. I like my way of life. Therefore, you better not oppose the gods who give me my way of life. I worship them. I need them. Don't you dare. Or you will feel my rage, says the country. Friends, if you most love America, you'll oppose its false gods. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. I'm not telling you to oppose America. I'm telling you to love America. How? By being honest and opposing its false gods who are to the nation's destruction as they are in every nation. So point one, every nation rebels against the Lord. Point two, God has no and tolerates no challengers. Again, note takers, point two, God has no and 
tolerates no challengers. Verse 4, he who sits in the heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Was God threatened by Pharaoh who sought to devour God's people? Well, think of the plagues. Was God threatened by the mighty Philistine army and Goliath? Think of David and his little rocks. Was God threatened by the mighty Nebuchadnezzar over the whole Babylonian empire? Well, think of Nebuchadnezzar down on hands and knees, crawling around, eating grass like a cow. I don't think the Lord was threatened. Was he threatened by Herod and Pontius Pilate? You guys are just doing what my hand foreordained that you would do. When I read verses 4 to 6, I I think of that episode in The Silver Chair by C.S. Lewis where Jill Pohl wakes up, finds herself incredibly thirsty, sees a stream, starts going towards the stream, but behold, there is a terrible-looking lion between her and the stream. It lay with its head raised and its two forepaws out in front of it. She knew at once it had seen her, for its eyes looked straight into hers for a moment and then turned away as if it knew quite, her quite well and didn't think much of her. If I run away, it'll be after me in a moment, thought Jill. And if I go on, I shall run straight into its mouth. Anyway, she couldn't have moved if she had tried and she couldn't take her eyes off it. How long this lasted, she could not be sure. It seemed like hours. And the thirst became so bad that she almost felt she would not mind being eaten by the lion if only she could be sure of getting a mouthful of water first. If you are thirsty, you may drink. For a second, she stared here and there, wondering who had spoken. Then the voice said again, If you are thirsty, come and drink. And she realized that it was the lion speaking. Anyway, she had seen its lips move this time, and the voice was not like a man's. It was deeper, wilder, and stronger, a sort of heavy, golden voice. It did not make her less frightened than she had been before, but it made her frightened in a rather different way. Are you not thirsty? said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do? said Jill. And the lion answered this only with a, by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious, rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come? said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that, without noticing it, she had come a step closer. Do you eat girls? she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say it as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step near. I suppose I must go look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. 
It never occurred to Jill to disbelieve the lion. No one who had seen its stern face could do that. And her mind suddenly made itself up. It was the worst thing she had ever had to do, but she went forward to the stream, knelt down, and began scooping up water in her hand. It was the coldest, most refreshing water she had ever tasted. Friends, God is awesome. He is majestic and powerful and mighty. He has no and tolerates no challengers. He is, this lion is the faintest, shadowiest glimpse of what God is actually like. It's a dim little picture of this mighty lion who swallows girls and boys, men and women, kings and emperors, cities and realms. He beholds the, earth, the, the kings of the earth in derision, it says. He, he laughs at them. Th- think of Daniel coming up out of a lion's den and saying to this pagan king Darius, O king, live forever. Daniel, don't you know that Darius is an existential threat against you? Don't you know he could throw you right back to these lions? How how could Daniel do that with such courage? Well, he knows the Lord is the lion. He knows he holds Darius in derision and will terrify Darius in his wrath. What does Daniel have to be afraid of, right? Right? Earlier this year, the National Religious Affairs Administration of China released a set of regulation on the management of religious groups. Here's Article 17 from that. Uh, Religious organizations must spread the principles and the policies of the Chinese Communist Party. Tom, this is your job description. Write this down. According to the Chinese Communist Party, spread the principles and policies of the party. They must educate religious personnel and citizens, that's you, to support the leadership of the Chinese Communist Party, support the socialist system, adhere to and follow the path of socialism with Chinese characteristics. The Chinese Communist Party is a very real existential threat. They insist on total submission, and they really will put you in prison. They really might even take your life. They are a real existential threat. Let's not deny that. A few weeks ago, my pastor friend named Victor, uh, who's a pastor of an illegal house church in China, emailed me and a few other friends and said, well, I've just, I've just been released from 11 days in detention, me and the four other elders of the church. The police showed up several weeks ago uh, to our church, and they disbanded us, and they, they put the five of us elders of the church in detention. Uh, now we're trying to figure out what to do. Our church membership is right around 200, and 200 is about the number that the police will start paying attention to the illegal house churches. They kind of give them a pass at 20, 30, 40, 50, 100. But by the time your illegal church house reaches 200, that's when they perceive the threat. That's when they show up. So now Victor and his elders are wondering, what do we do? Do we continue to gather as all 200? Or should he said, should we break up into five groups of 40 with one elder over each? And I'm thinking, of course you break up. I'm like, why would you, you know... Why would you draw that extra measure of opposition on yourself? Whereas Victor was thinking, you know, we're kind of wondering about sticking with the 200. I'm like, good for you, brother. But how, how, can, 
How can Victor do that? Victor, don't you know the Chinese Communist Party is an existential threat to you in your church? I just spent 11 days in detention. I think I very know, know very well what kind of threat the Chinese Communist Party is. Thank you. How can he do that? Well, he knows the one who sits in heaven laughs at the Chinese Communist Party, holds him in derision, is a mighty lion that will swallow that party, will swallow that nation, will swallow all the surrounding nations, should he please. There's no threat, finally, from the Chinese Communist Party. Victor can get on with his work of leading the saints, leading the citizens of heaven. God has no, God tolerates no challengers. There's a third thing I want us to learn from the psalm. Specifically, here it is, verses 7 to 9. God has granted all rule and dominion to His Son. God has granted all rule and dominion to His Son. Verse 7, you are my Son, today I have begotten you. So the King is declared to be God's Son, which is how God referred to the occupants of David's throne, pointing to the eventual occupant of that throne. Verse 8, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. So God commissions this king to make his rule and dominion visible, not just in Israel, but eventually the earth. And of course, didn't Jesus tell us to go to all nations making disciples? And isn't Jesus' rule becoming visible today right here at Christ's covenant? And I guess maybe not on that field of Chevrolet Baptist Church, but I guess on the Zoom call in some sense. And, and in churches around the world today, isn't his rule becoming visible? And then verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The book of Revelation quotes this verse three times in reference to Christ. Revelation 19, for instance, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And friends, it's because of Christ's dreadful judgment, this this assurance that we don't need to live in fear, resentment, rage. The principalities and the powers want to get us worked up over whatever we're watching on Fox News or CNN. They want us to work us into a feverish pitch, distressed and overwrought about what's going on in the next election. Friends, the Son possesses all authority and all judgment. Now, am I saying we should disengage from politics? I'm not saying that. There's, there's three wrong paths, three bad paths that we can take politically. Path, bad path number one is, is withdrawal. Call this the Jonah option. I don't want to go to nasty Nineveh. I'm out of here. Okay, that's withdrawal, the Jonah option, not the way we go, should go. Wrong path number two is capitulation, right? Call this the Judas option. Ah, that silver looks pretty good, right? The Judas Option. Uh, the, the German Evangelical Church of 1933 aligned itself with the policies of the Nazi Party. They capitulated. A subtler example of that would be liberal Christianity's way of accommodating itself to the sexual ethic of the day. So we don't want the Jonah option. We don't want the Judas option. The third thing that we don't want, we talked about it last night, is the co-option option, right? 
where we are pursuing right and good things, but finally we are being co-opted, enlisted by the forces and the parties of this world as if those are the biggest deals. So it's, it's again, it's not, and then this is probably the biggest threat for an evangelical church. We're pursuing right and good things, but we're giving earthly political outcomes an outsized importance. Call this the Peter picking up the sword in the Garden of Gethsemane option, right? Jesus is like, yeah, that's not how we're going to do this, Peter, right? Okay, so what is the right way to engage? That brings us to point number four. Fourth and finally, take refuge in the Son and represent Him, verses 10 to 12. Take refuge in the Son and represent Him, Verse 10 asks us, asks us to represent the Son. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, rulers of the earth. Be warned, Donald Trump. Be warned, Joe Biden. Be warned, John Roberts. Be warned, Amy Coney Barrett. Be warned, Mr. Mayor. Be warned, President of the PTA. Be warned, voters. And those who would vote for them, verse 11, serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling. In fact, verse 12, kiss the son. How audacious is that? Get down on your knees and, O president, O prime minister, O voter, get down on your knees and, and kiss his feet. You owe that to him. That's a Bold statement, isn't it? Lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. He's a lion. Okay, so if withdrawal, capitulation, and being co-opted are the wrong paths, what is the right path for a Christian engagement? Two words, refuge, represent. Refuge, represent. We're to take refuge in him so that we then represent him. Look at the last verse. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. There's no refuge from him, says one commentator, only refuge in him. And then having taken refuge in him, what do we do? We then represent him. Where do I get that? Where do I get that idea of represent? Well, that's precisely what the apostles Peter and John say about this psalm. In, psalm Acts, Acts, in Acts 4, they actually quote this very psalm for us. Why do the nations, Acts 4, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain, they ask. And, and then they notice where they locate that rage. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. Both, right? In this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. The rage of the nations is seen most clearly, most laser beam decidedly in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And friends, you know that if you were there, you would have done the same thing. We all have a hand in that. And then notice what Peter and John asked for next, the ability to represent Christ with great boldness. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak with great boldness. Then after they praised, prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God boldly. Okay, so did you follow all of this? 
I told you at the beginnings, the nations rage and their kings and the voters rage against the Lord Jesus. And how do we know? Well, that's, that's what Peter and John tell us. And, and where do they see that? Where do we see that rage? We see that rage in the very place Jesus came to establish his rule. The very place he came to establish first his kingship. Where, where, where was that? Well, it was the place where he asked for a crown. Do you remember that? And they gave him a crown of thorns. And then he offered his shoulders for a, a royal robe. And so then after beating and bruising his shoulders and his body, they, they put on that robe. And do, you, do you remember the place where he said, put me, put me in my throne? Where was that? Well, it's, it's when they put him on the throne of the cross and they lifted him up. And there on the throne of the cross, what did King Jesus do? He defeated the greatest enemies of humanity we've ever had. Our own sin, and then the consequences of that sin, death. And then he rose again from the grave, indicating that he had defeated sin and death, and said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Follow after me. Give up your rage. Take refuge in me. Blessed are you if you would take refuge in me. So friends, are, are you on the political left and you most fear the right, the existential threat of the right, or are you on the right and most fear the existential threat of the left? I don't want to downplay either threat. Instead, I want to say, look at Jesus. What did Jesus do? He stood before Herod and Pontius Pilate and he received the fullness of the existential threat against his own body in the crucifixion. And yet not only that, he received the eternal threat from God himself and paid the price, paid the penalty for all of us who put our trust in him and follow after him. And then he defeated them, as I said, rising again from the grave. If you're here this morning as a non-Christian, what is, what is the lesson for all of this in you? It's that you and I have raged against the Lord in all of life, in our politics, in the voting booth, and everywhere else. And now the Lord Jesus comes and says, be warned, be wise, and he calls you to take refuge in him. If you're here this morning as a Christian, as a member of Christ's covenant church, what's What's the final lesson for you? Well, it reminds us we're first and foremost citizens of his kingdom. Before we're the citizens of any nation, party, government. And it reminds us that the nations are going to rage against him, but the one in heaven laughs. He's not afraid. You don't need to be afraid. He's a lion. He eats and swallows boys and girls, cities, and realms, kings, and emperors. And we look to him, and we take refuge in him. And we tell our friends, be warned, be wise. There is no other stream. Let's pray.